0: I want to just deal with a very short verse, <clears throat> um, and that is uh, Hebrews ten five. but it's a, a very significant verse, and we have to catch that it's couched in a picture of the temple and the meaning of the temple. Let me read verse 5. Therefore, when he comes into the world, he says, sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In chapter 9, Hebrews began a kind of typological reading of the two covenants, the old covenant under uh, Moses and the new covenant under Christ. And with it then, two temples. And this is the subject that continues in chapter 10. That is, there's the temple of, you know, the tabernacle, the temple in Jerusalem, but also the temple that is Christ or Christ's body. And so the Mosaic law and its Temple are a shadow of their true form found in Christ, who is the true temple. In describing the relationship between the heavenly and the earthly tabernacle, we're really beginning to get at the relationship between God and the cosmos and how this relationship culminates in the person of Christ. The temple is We've said the microcosmos, meaning that it is itself, it is a picture of the world. And in this, certainly God is imminent in the cosmos, in the Holy of Holies. But this is in tension with the picture of God's dwelling place in heaven and his transcendence. So the solution, I think, and this is what I'm going to talk about today, the tension is there in two pictures of an understanding of God in the Old Testament. And what I would say is let's emphasize both aspects because these the idea of God's transcendence, his dwelling in heaven, and God's eminence are brought together in Christ who is at once human and divine. And this is the significance of this body, this in, the incarnation of Christ. And this touches upon our understanding of the atonement because too strong an emphasis or a wrong emphasis on the death of Christ, and I think this is what we often have uh, in penal substitution or in large parts of Protestantism, it's going to focus only on atonement as it works in the heavenly temple, in... Uh, and outside of the notion of the temple as a microcosmos. And with it, you know, what we actually have, I think, is actually Christ's death, Christ's atonement, his life, death, and resurrection, is reordering the world. On the other hand, to miss the incarnation and death of Christ as the central part of his ministry, we may miss the significance of his embodied Priesthood, his heavenly priesthood in which He sits at the right hand of the Father. Because Christ enters the eternal temple and is crowned with glory, it says in 10.10, His death never needs to be repeated again. It's present to us today. His body becomes the perfect temple, the perfect offering, the means of access uh, into the Holy of Holies. N.T. Wright then has described, he said, actually what we need to do rather than argue about the person of God or the Trinity, uh, we can approach our understanding of who God is through the temple. We can understand who Christ is as temple substitute. It's basic to New Testament Christology that the human Jesus discloses in himself the being and the true nature of God. He does this in conjunction with this phrase, the body you have prepared for me. But what I'm saying, yes, but we're going to only understand the full meaning of this phrase as we set it against the background of what did the Jews believe about the temple? Because that's going to be fulfilled through Christ. Yahweh is expected to return to the temple in Jerusalem. His glory had departed from that temple. And Jesus, when he enters the temple, you know, destroy this temple and in three days, he's clearly referencing himself. He's the true temple. He constitutes the return of Yahweh that God has come to his temple. But beyond this, he reconstitutes the temple. In that we now have, as the writer says in chapter 10, we have direct access into the Holy of Holies through his flesh, through his body, which serves as the veil, the door of access. In his obedience unto death, Christ lives out perfect love, perfect obedience before the Father. And this, the full reality of the Holy of Holies, the throne of heaven, is found then in in the incarnation of Christ. The Jews developed two notions then about the temple, and this is what I want to talk about. The first, as I've mentioned, is that the temple is a microcosmos. And they wrestled with the question of God's eminence, the mystery of God in creation. Uh, The Jews reflected on the idea that the earthly temple, though, also reflects God's heavenly temple. And so they pondered the question of God's transcendence and the mystery of God, you know, beyond creation and yet in creation. And so God in creation, God beyond creation. Actually, two themes that are there in the Old Testament, you know, coming together through Mount Zion, I think ultimately the peak of understanding God beyond and in creation is a Christological affirmation. God is both, you know, in Christ human, fully human, fully divine. The idea that the temple epitomizes and makes present in miniature the reality of the entire cosmos is, is a key idea in the priestly writings. I think this is unfortunately a key idea that we've lost in our understanding of the redemption of Christ. Uh, That the consecration of the temple, the tabernacle, is actually the climax of creation. So the account, you know, two places it talks about creation. Obviously Genesis, but how does Genesis, you know, what's the the culmination of creation? The seventh day in which God rests. Where does God rest? Well, he rests in the temple of creation in Exodus The same thing. They both end in the same way in the picture of the tabernacle. The seventh day, God rests in the tabernacle. So Sabbath rest is this idea of God coming to his temple to inhabit the temple. God coming to creation to walk in the garden in the cool of the day with mankind. Their end point is that Yahweh and humankind rest together together. In the garden, in the temple. And we can begin to see how creation's purpose is fulfilled in this body. The body you prepared for me. The temple prepared by God. The true temple. Once we see the pattern that it, it unfolds. And it's going to unfold in many places. Just one example. In Exodus, the seven speeches you know, of Moses. Uh, each of them beginning with the Lord said to Moses... And then the seventh speech. There are seven speeches. The first six speeches give precise instructions on how to set up the tabernacle. And obviously you're thinking, oh, this is parallel to the days of creation. Six days of creation, six days of instruction, the temple. And then as you go into it, I'll just touch on this a little bit. We could go into this in great detail. But each part of the temple, the lampstand, the, the various aspects, I believe are reflective of the days of creation. You know, the lampstand is given in the first speech. What happens on the first day of creation? The separation of light and darkness. The third speech addresses the fabrication of the laver of bronze. You know, it's also called the sea in Kings. It parallels the separation of dry land and the sea in the third day of creation. The sixth speech, which can be associated with the creation of human beings, right? Well, on the sixth day, the craftsman, uh, Bezalel, who is filled with the spirit, is going to carry out the, the uh, crafting of parts of the temple. The work of creation is not complete until the tabernacle is erected and God's glory dwells with his people. Now, the tabernacle is not the final piece of the puzzle that must be added you know, before creation is whole. Rather, what I'm saying is that the tabernacle is the very same creation in miniature. Uh, with one distinction, at Sinai, God invites humans to partake in the work of establishing, of ordering the cosmos. Maybe this idea is even there in Genesis. In the You know, Adam is given the task of naming the animals. It's reflected certainly in the, the participation in the temple. And of course, this is fulfilled in Christ, the second Adam. Who is going to bring order to the cosmos. That is human beings are co-creators. They're participants in the creation. Setting creation in order. Adam names the animals. The priest is going to you know the, the craftsmen are going to order the temple. Christ is ordering the universe. We can even picture the rhythm of Exodus. And compare it to Genesis. God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the water, and God made the expanse. But now, instead of the execution of the command being carried out by God, it's carried out by human beings. You know, this is in the speeches of Moses. Uh, They themselves are going to build the sanctuary where God will dwell. In a sense, then, they're recapitulating the divine work Of establishing order. Now, this completion of the temple, the work of Moses, he's not just building the structure, but what takes place—the work is complete only with the lighting of the sacrificial pyre, with the inauguration of what is called the Tamid, the perpetual sacrifice. Every morning, every evening, uh, there will be burnt offerings. And when the daily sacrifices begin, the goal of creation is consummated. And so the divine presence, which is enjoyed at the tabernacle, and the corresponding cosmic order uh, associated with the tabernacle, I think they're inseparable from these burnt offerings, or what the burnt offerings are going to represent at the close, you know, the opening and closing of each day. The cosmic order reflected in the sacrifices reflect then I think ultimately backward you know what was the first sacrifice well it's called the Akedah Abraham taking Isaac up Mount Moriah and we've talked about this who is Abraham and Isaac representative of well actually Abraham is representative of God and Isaac is representative of Christ the Akedah the Uh, sacrifice of Isaac is fulfilled through Christ. Isaac's life, then, is a life dedicated to God, one who's completely obedient, but that obedience is fulfilled in Christ. And so the sacrifices of the temple are built upon this original idea reflective of the faith of Abraham. And the triumph over chaos commemorated in the temple, you know, the microcosm of the world, it must be a triumph that works itself out through the kind of self-giving that we see in Isaac and the sacrificial practices that bring life to the sanctuary. Two things happen in the story of Abraham that I think are repeated here in this verse that we're talking about with Christ. When God calls Abraham, Abraham says, Here am I, Lord. Um, the, and then when Abraham asks God about, Well, where? what will we sacrifice? God says, I will provide. And so Yahweh Yireh is actually the name given to God God will provide. And specifically when Abraham says, Here I am. The two things are brought in to relationship. You know, think, think back when God has called Adam. Adam, where art thou? What did Adam respond? Oh, he didn't respond. He ran and hid. When God calls Cain, Cain, where art thou? How does Cain respond? You know, Am I my brother's keeper? When God calls Abraham, he says, here I am, Lord, here am I. Here am I, Lord, in the body thou hast prepared for me. You know, this is the verse we're looking at, verse 5. I said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God. Here is the fulfillment, I think, of Abraham's, you know, trust, his faith in God. So if the theology of the Akedah and the theology of Mount Zion, that is the sacrifice, we believe that the sacrifice of Abraham, Mount Moriah, Mount Zion, in fact, may be the same place. And if the temple consummates and represents creation in its most essential form, then it must be the case that the very heart of creation is expressed here on Mount Moriah. Fulfilled in Christ. Here is creation's purpose. Being worked out. In the true temple. The psalmist says that Yahweh. Built his sanctuary like the heavens. Like the earth that he established forever. The shrine or the. That is symbolic of the heavens. The menorah. Symbolic of the seven planets. The twelve loaves of bread. Uh, you know, call to mind the 12 months of the year or the signs of the zodiac, uh, the special emphasis given to the veil, in which the four colored materials of, are woven together, and we believe these represent the four elements which make up the universe. But the writer of Hebrews says the veil is the body of Christ, the purpose of the universe is to give us access to God. They are now made complete in Christ, who is the true veil, the true entryway into the very presence of God. The copper basin in the outer courtyard to see the altar burn offerings, you know, uh, representing the earth. As the priest passes through the sea and the earth, they become an entryway into the Holy of Holies. And the Holy of Holies is this square, windowless room, the innermost chamber. We can go back, look at kings. But Solomon had put there the mercy seat, and he had the cherubim. They think that the wings of the cherubim were actually, they filled the room uh, with their wingspan. Uh, On the walls of both the shrine, the Holy of Holies, they carve reliefs of cherubim, palm trees, flowers, flowers. precious stones, chains decorated with pomegranates, and all of this is covered in ornate gold. It was the Shabbat place. It is the Sabbath place. It is the Shalom place. It is the very room in which the glory of God is revealed and man then comes in to meet with God. The imagery calls to mind a peaceful, fertile garden, which the Hebrews will continually connect to the Garden of Eden. And so the temple is the truth of creation in miniature. Its innermost heart, hidden but nevertheless present in creation, it is a paradise in which God and man meet. The high priest steps beyond the veil into the Holy of Holies. It's pictured as him stepping outside time itself, and the rituals in the Holy of Holies are taking place in the Hebrew imagination in eternity. For ancient Israel, the temple was the center, the navel of the universe. It is the axis that unites the spheres. It is the foundation stone. It secures the cosmic order. And of course, I hope you're thinking here, yes, and this is fulfilled in Christ. Here is the one who is the true navel. Here is the one who secures the cosmic order. Jubilees pictures the Garden of Eden uh, as the true uh, Holy of Holies and the dwelling of the Lord. Mount Sinai was in the midst of the desert and it is also then pictured as the navel in the midst of the navel of the earth. As far back as Ezekiel, There is reference to Jerusalem as the center, also the idea of the navel of the earth. Uh, And so Mount Zion was the source, uh, the summit of Israel's spiritual life. So when we say Christ is true temple, all of this meaning is taken up into the person and work of Christ. Here is true life. Here is the summit of creation. Here is creation's purpose. Now, the temple was also sacramental. It guaranteed the stability, you know, this, of, the, of the cosmos itself, of the real physical world, symbolically at least. Its destruction would logically mean the destruction of the world. This is why Christ's prediction of the stru- destruction of the temple is such a radical, revolutionary note you know, that, of course, occurs in 70 A.D., And so they would return, the Jews, day and night to Mount Moriah, continually grafting themselves uh, into the self-giving faithfulness, the repetition of the giving of Abraham and Isaac through the sacrificial rites. Convinced that, in in fact, they were keeping the order of creation, uh, that they were creating a cosmic peace. And so the role of humanity in creation is to maintain and embody the order necessary for life to flourish and for God to dwell peacefully with his creation. And this includes the sacrificial practices that show a continual recommitment to the open-heartedness, the giving of life at the Akedah, a life dedicated to God. Now, that's one picture this beautiful picture of the temple. But if that's the only picture that we have, I'm afraid that we create a problem, because if we imagine that the throne were located in the cosmos, it's one sphere among the others, the danger is that God is diminished, that God is limited, that He's made finite. The microcosm tradition that is certainly there in Scripture can imply that God's realm is merely a privileged place within the universe. Perhaps more perfect, perhaps superior, but nonetheless within creation. So we need to bring the other side of scripture into this. Think here of the words recorded by Isaiah. They're quoted by Stephen as he's martyred. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by human hands. As the prophet said, Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? So the temple as microcosm is ultimately inadequate to capture the relationship between the divine and the human truth And in fact, on its own, it it may be a kind of distortion. And the other picture in the Old Testament is the temple is actually a mirror of heaven. And this is focused on in the what we would call the Deuteronomic and Deuteronomy. You know, this would include Deuteronomy, Joshua's, Judges, Samuel, Kings. And in in these books, God does not descend to earth. But he remains always enthroned in heaven. And it's only his name that dwells in the temple. And so in the Deuteronomic traditions, they maintain that God is not on earth, but it becomes clear that for them, the name of God is a sign of divine presence. It's not a full manifestation of God himself. So, you know, Solomon's speech when he dedicates the temple in 1 Kings 8, it's directed toward God in heaven. And Solomon says repeatedly that the temple is for God's shem, for God's name, for God's fame. And where he says, but God, will God really dwell on earth? Even the heavens to their uttermost reaches cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built. And so if God is uncontained. By even the highest heaven. And so claims of God's presence in the temple. They're, they're certainly going to be qualified. Right? In this sense the ark. Serves in these books. In the Deuteronomic tradition. As a reminder of the covenant of Moses. The temple is educational. It houses the symbols of. Of divinity, rather than divinity. And God's glory is rightly celebrated, but it's celebrated as holy other. Now, there's a danger here too, right? That God will be seen as distant, so distant, in fact, as to be irrelevant. I believe that historically, it is this focus that we get In various forms of Catholicism that come down to Protestantism. We have this focus on God as other to such a degree that it gives way historically to deism and ultimately to atheism. So the danger is a desacralization of the earthly temple in favor of the heavenly, and the emphasis on divine truth But this truth is untouched by time, change, you know, the dustiness of the earth and history. Truth can become so absolute that it eclipses all else. It eclipses the creaturely truth, and the creaturely truth becomes devalued, maybe even annihilated, and I think that characterizes modernity. Let me conclude here with a quote. This is from... Uh, A man named Richard Berry, who has actually done his doctoral dissertation on the temple and the person of Christ. He describes the contrast. From one perspective, the temple represented the perfection of creation. The Edenic purity that God called into being from the start. From the other perspective, the temple represented the splendor of uncreated heaven the place from which the angels eternally cry out in delight, holy, holy, holy. From one perspective, the temple was a monument to humanity's great vocation and dignity, our calling to partake in the creative ordering of the world. From the other perspective, the temple was the place where the visionary is overwhelmed. He falls down in worship and experiences his unworthiness before God. From one perspective, the temple is the locus of God's free and immediate indwelling at the very heart of creaturely being. From the other perspective, it only vaguely mirrors a reality that so far surpasses creaturely competence that the prophet is reduced to stammering. About palaces of ice and fire. For one, the truth of God is found most intimately in and through the peaceful order of the good creation, in and through imminence, in and through God's presence in creation. For the other, God's truth is an apocalyptic interruption that shakes the foundation of the world. That's the tension. I hope you get the tension. Because the tension is what the writer of Hebrews is resolving for us in chapter 10. In Hebrews, we see that because Jesus Christ, the incarnate one, the ultimate union of heaven and earth, of divine and created, that he constitutes the final proportion between the two. And hence, he is the span Between heaven and earth. He is the bridge. He is the entryway from earth to heaven. A body you have prepared for me. And this is the function of this body. Jesus does not merely replace the temple. He is the true temple. Jesus is the personified. The vivified. Enfleshed. Recapitulation of the most holy sanctuary. In its whole history, from Eden to Moriah, Sinai to Zion, here is the most holy brought to earth through a body you have prepared for. Let's sing our hymn, Timothy.